is the WTF Bach Podcast. The podcast about Johann Sebastian Bach, brought to you by his prodigal son, WTF Bach. Join WTF Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. Why don't you let WTF Bach guide you? And now, here's WTF Bach. It's WTF Bach, Evan Schinner's broaching a subject that needs to be broached. Should we wish to understand our man in question, Mr. Bach? And that is, what is a chorale? What is a chorale? C-H-O-R-A-L-E. Did I get that right? C-H-O-R-A-L-E. It's choral with an E at the end. Now, this is a topic, like I suppose many topics on this podcast, could be studied itself for many episodes. So we're going to cram months of study into a few minutes here, but I think it's feasible. Choral is not unrelated to the word carol, as in a Christmas carol, something we sing. Now, choral and carol both have their origins in the word chorus, which, for my brief etymological research on this word, seems to have acquired a meaning that involved singing from very early on, because the Greek chorus meant a round dance, a company of dancers in a ring, a company of persons in a play who would take part in the dialogue and sing their sentiments together. And that's very interesting, because I never imagined the Greek chorus would sing their lines. That's fascinating in and of itself. But when we see the word carol around the year 1300, it too means a joyful dance in a ring accompanied by singers. So it's still song and dance around the year 1300. There's also the word choir around the year 1300, which means not only the group of singers, but actually the part of the church where the singers sung. They sang in the choir. And this is spelled in all sorts of funky ways. C-U-E-R-Q-U-E-O-R and even Q-U-Y-R-E. It's all still related to the Greek word for chorus, however. But then in the 16th century, the word choral, so chorale without the E now, comes along and it basically means pertaining to vocal performance as opposed to instrumental performance. Okay, so eventually this word leaves behind its dance component and it means a group that is singing something. So we're in the 16th century and I apologize to any religious scholars for my crude reduction of this material, but along comes Martin Luther and he is a reformer, right? He is the one who breaks from the Latin church and he wants to make a more community-based church in Germany. So one of the things he does is translate the sacred songs into the vernacular, German, the language of the people. He takes the old hymns, the old chant melodies, and he puts the text in German. And he also writes a whole lot of new melodies and new texts, and he, as one could say, was a hymnodist. This is a tradition that I suppose still continues, and it's a tradition that dates all the way back to the Psalms themselves with David, right? The Psalms were these poems that were meant to be sung. And so now the word chorale comes about, and it means melodies that Luther himself began, melodies with German text. I'll play, and I suppose I'll sing, if you don't mind, a few of these melodies composed by Martin Luther. Christe du Lamm Gottes, der du trägst die Sünden der Welt, erbarm dies unser. And then I believe there follows an Amen, probably something... Not quite like the gospel, Amen, but... Amen. All right, another one. Von Himmel hoch, da komm ich her. Ich bring euch guten Neuen mehr. 
Den guten Meer bring ich so viel, davon ich sing und sagen will. That one is from heaven high I come here. So these are melodies written by Martin Luther himself in the 16th century. This last one here, Christlagen Todesbanden, is actually an excellent example of Luther translating directly from the Gregorian chant because this comes from the Victime Pascali Laudes, um, which is probably from the 10th century, actually. And by the time it reaches Luther, he's put German on it and sort of altered the chant. His is... Chris lagen Todesbanden für unsere Sünde gegeben. Der ist wieder erstanden und hat uns brach das Leben. Dass wir sollen fröhlich sein, Gott loben und dankbar sein und singen Halleluja. Hallelujah. Right, hallelujah. Uh, it reminds us of the, of course, Victime Pascali Laudes. That's the Latin that he translated it from. Okay, so now we see Luther taking the Latin melodies and putting them into something more familiar for your German-speaking audience. But I learned something fascinating when researching this topic. We're all familiar with the melody on top, right? When we sing in church or whatever, the, the top voices are singing the melody and the other parts are the harmony. That's the soprano, alto, tenor, bass. The soprano's always singing the melody. But in the 1524 book, that uh, is Ein Geistliches Gesangbuch. That's the, the songbook that I'm singing from. That's Martin Luther's first book prepared by Johann Walter, who was a composer who worked with Luther himself. They prepared these 32 songs. This book, by the way, is called The Root of All Protestant Song Music. So you can bet your, what do they say, your, your bottom dollar. You can bet your dime that Bach knew this book very well. The melodies, however, in this book are not on top, but they're in the tenor. Now, I didn't know that, and it's very interesting to know this because in Bach's Passions, for example, the evangelist, the speaker, is a tenor voice. So, for example, another Luther melody is Aus tiefer Not schrei ich zu dir out of deep need I cry to you. And you can even see the word painting going on as early as Martin Luther in the 16th century, he says, Aus tiefer Not schreistudia. So he goes deep. Da, 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 da. That's the depths of Luther's melody. But when it appears in the 1524 songbook, this is what you hear.
Right. So that sounded lovely, I hope. I mean, that 16th century counterpoint composed by Johann Walter, I think we all need some more 16th century polyphony in our lives. But that sounded nothing like the melody that I originally played. You know, this one. Because it's embedded in the tenor here. See? In 1524, the melodies are in the tenor. And like I said, Bach definitely knew this book because in 1724, that's exactly 200 years later after the publication, Bach starts in on his cantata cycle where he's got these chorale melodies sort of forming the basis, the construction of the cantata itself. But that's another topic. That's just how conscientious Bach was of what was going on in his, in his neighborhood. Anyways, over the next 200 years, the melodies somehow float from the tenor into the soprano. How and why that happened is a study in itself. But anyways, by the time that Bach inherits the tradition of making his own harmonies on these same melodies, these same old, old melodies, already for Bach, they were old melodies, 200 years old, the melody is mostly in the top voice. Now, did Bach only use these melodies to be sung? Well, obviously not. They factored hugely into his organ music, his, his keyboard music, we could even say. And we might say that Bach uses the chorale in three ways. I'll explain all three of these ways. The first one is vertically. The first, that's the four-part chorale that we're all used to hearing. I'll play a few four-part chorales right now. You, can, you can't complain about that, can you? <laughs> church. Here's another one, but in a minor mode now. favorites. It gets a bit hairy there chromatically toward the end. We could say that these textures, these vertical textures, are primarily sung. However, in many of the organ works where Bach has what I'm going to introduce now as a chorale prelude, he'll actually have a sort of figured bass with the melody and just a bass line, meaning now you play a sort of four-part chorale on the organ. So what is this chorale prelude that I'm about to introduce? Well, it's his lovely way of breaking 
the melody apart into something that doesn't sound like a four-part chorale, into something that sounds, well, like a prelude. Maybe that's why it's called a chorale prelude. And in the early examples from Bach, he will keep the harmonic rhythm more or less the same. And this idea for Bach is so important. Making music based on the chorale melody is so important for Bach that this is the second or the third piece of music that he writes for his first son. In fact, in the notebook for WF, we have, it's very concise, I should probably do an episode on it, uh, one page saying, okay, boy, here's all of the notes. The, you know, CDE, all the lines, here's every single clef, here's how to read all the clefs. Uh, and then the second page, he says, and here's all the ornaments. That's the famous table of the ornaments where he decodes the squiggles, sort of decodes the Baroque hieroglyphics. Then he has a piece called the applicatio, the application thereof, you know. Here's how you finger a scale, here's, here's the notes and the ornaments, and now here's a little piece based on how to do that. Then you have one small prelude, this one. You probably know that if you studied music as a child. And then, boom, church music, heavy, heavy music. I'm going to play this piece here on this little electric clavichord. This is Wer nur den lieben Gott lässt walten. Whomever lets God prevail, that's the title of this piece, and here it is. Now that is heavy stuff. Imagine being, you know, 10 and that's your, basically your second piano lesson. First you've had this piece and then you have to have this chorale prelude based on an old church melody, but that's how important it was for Bach. So what he does is he takes this line of music, actually my clavichord's transposed, so the line of music is, and he, you know, sort of baroques it So this idea, this is very important for the early chorale preludes of Bach, where the melody is still on the top, but now it's embellished and flowing all over the place. And honestly, if you didn't know this melody, you might not realize that this piece is based on an old church melody, because the sound of the construction of the piece is just so mellifluous sounding and through sounding. It sounds like any other prelude. But now what I'm going to do is play the 
non-embellished melody, in other words, a harmonization that Bach himself made of this same melody in cantata number 93, and I'm going to put that four-part harmonization in one speaker, and then I'm going to play the exact same piece that I just played now in the other speaker at the same time to show you that indeed the harmonic movement moves the same, the harmonic rhythm rather, moves the same between the four-part chorales and the early chorale prelude style. You saw that the chorale played itself ended in minor, whereas Bach gave us the Picardy third in the four-part harmony. But if you were listening closely, you'll notice that I had to make one little concession, a pause, to line up the second halves of the phrase. And that's the odd thing about these chorale melodies, because they are, in a way, very much like chant. In fact, the books from the 16th and 17th centuries print the melodies with note heads that look like the old Gregorian chant note heads. You know, they flow. They don't always fit into a constant meter. So if you're trying to compose music around chant melodies, which don't always fit into the box, you're going to have to sort of do something. You're going to have to adjust the rhythm. And in fact, this melody, which was penned by Herr Georg Neumark in 1657, this melody was originally in triple meter. So when Bach makes his setting of it, he's having to deal with taking a melody that was in 3-4 and putting it into 4-4. Four, four. Here's what the original melody sounded like. Um, let's see here. Wenn nur die lieben Gottlers Welten und Hafet Aden Aden Dam. So you have that one, two, three, one. But by the time Bach deals with it, it's one, uh, sorry, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one. Now there's also this idea that the singer has to breathe between the phrases, right? So they don't suffocate. Even in these earliest chorale books, even from the ones in 1524, there are these little commas after the phrases. Now, if you're a singer, or if you've just sung a hymn before, you know this idea. They've been replaced now with fermatas instead of commas, but it's still the same thing. And there is ongoing debate about how long you pause. I've even heard that the length you pause between the commas is a sign that you're either a Catholic or a Protestant, but that's another issue. Still, the idea is that the chorale is made up of these little bits of music, right? Sing a bit, breathe a bit, sing a bit, uh, breathe a bit rather, <laughs> breathe a bit, sing a bit. This idea that the chorale is built up of these little teeny phrases leads up to the final form of the chorale prelude. 
though obviously there's some overlap, these are typically later Bach pieces. So in the earlier form of the chorale period, we have what we just saw, where the melody is on top and it's sort of embellished in a way, and it goes more or less along the same harmonic rhythms as the four-part chorale. But in the late style of the Bach chorale prelude, he begins doing something marvelous. Now, as I'm talking about this, I realize we've already had an example of it when we did the cantata Herz und Mund und Tat und Leben, the famous Jesu Joy of Man's Desiring. That, in fact, that movement is a chorale prelude where the hymn, you know, those four-part harmonies are broken up phrase by phrase and sort of float down this river of this. So let's examine another example of a chorale prelude for organ. This is the first of his Leipzig chorale preludes. This is the first of the so-called Great 18. And these are indeed later works of Bach. You can see the confident master beginning to write this prelude, and we have no idea where the melody is. Where is this church melody? All I hear is, you know, sort of like a concerto grosso style for the organ. Listen to this. Okay, so what are we supposed to make of that? I mean, where is the chorale melody? All I hear is this flourish of 16th notes. Well, if you were listening to this slow uh, bass line played by the feet, that is in fact where our chorale melody is. We'll play it again. This is the melody. It's Komm Heiliger Geist, Komm Holy Spirit. Komm Heiliger Geist, der Gott. But first we hear uh, in the bass, in the pedal, we hear this and it, sa it sounds through the entire thing. It's just there. Yeah, you just slam down your left foot and then you just wait until uh, about a page of music passes by and then the pedals step up and do... And that's the first iteration of the phrase. I will speak over it as... Michel Chapuis plays this very fast interpretation of this prelude. So left, left foot is just holding the bass. Comma, the singer is breathing. And next phrase. The next comma, and the singer is again breathing. Here's the next phrase. 
one small comma and then the next. Almost about to say hallelujah with the feet, and we have these ornaments between the hands. Hallelujah. And the pedal line is even more animated. And one final hallelujah. Here. So that is one example of Bach using this huge river of flowing 16th notes, very virtuosic stuff that, in fact, it seemed like Monsieur Chapuy was having a slightly difficult time with. But in the feet, uh, that is what's singing out the, the chorale melody. I'm going to introduce another concept of the chorale melody, which is that at a certain point, Bach, being Bach, decided that it's not enough to put one entrance of the chorale melody in, sort of announcing in the piece, this is the chorale melody here in this one particular voice. Often he puts the chorale melody in canon with one another, and that's really why we're here today, because I wanted to look at one particular piece from the organ mass, the third part of the Klaviübung, the keyboard practice that Bach actually published in his lifetime. And this is a chorale prelude where he's so uh, ingenious that he's got two parts imitating each other that have nothing to do with the chorale melody. They're two parts sort of imitating each other in canon, and then the chorale melody themselves will imitate 
each other again in canon. And there is an obligato uh, pedal line where the foot just sort of dances around and orchestrates things. The melody in question here, in fact, the piece is called Vater Unser in Himmelreich. And it's again by Martin Luther, 1539. And I will sing it if you don't mind. Vater Unser in Himmelreich der du uns alle heißes gleich, Brüder sein und dich rufen an und will das Beten vor uns han, gib das nicht Bettelein der Mund, hilf des von Herzes so I can see right there the canonic potential in that, and Bach will definitely capitalize on it. Let's begin. This is BWV 682, and Bach writes for two keyboards and pedal, and the canto fermo, the cantus firmus, that is the chorale melody in canon. So we have to be looking for the melody coming in canon with itself, but when he writes for two keyboards, that implies that the left hand and the right hand will be playing on actually two different keyboards, and therefore two wholly different sets of pipes, so me sort of reducing this on the piano won't quite get the effect. But the obligato lines that are the right hand and left hand, they begin like this. That's the first entrance of the right hand, and the left hand you'll hear will go on to imitate it. Here's the left hand. So actually, if I were to line them up exactly, you would see that they'd be playing in parallel fifths against each other. I guess parallel fourths, excuse me. idea here is canon, and there are five voices to keep track of. These two, which are the, we could call them the extra melody voices. These melodies, they have nothing to do with the chorale melody. They actually don't seem to fit it at all, but that's sort of the brilliance of the chorale prelude, is that these extra melodies, such as this one from Valkhadav, What a pleasant melody. That doesn't fit the chorale melody of... It seems to have nothing to do with it, but then Bach sort of interweaves them together in such a masterful way. Okay, back to this chorale, Prelude Vater Unser in Himmelreich, and I will just play through the obligato voices from where I stopped and sort of talk about them. Keep in mind that chromatic line that just descended in the right hand. And here the left hand will start the imitation with this step thing that now the right hand picks up. And these triplets are now picked up in the left hand.
okay, this has sort of set the stage for what is going on in these other two voices. The pedal, by the way, is sort of plodding along here from the beginning. It sounds like this. not doing anything that will be imitated in any of the voices, but the canonic voices that are the chorale melody, let's dissect them next. So it is Vater unser in Himmelreich. Bach has now got us in this triple meter. And one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one. And see how beautifully Bach finds the point to imitate it in a perfect canon. So the right hand, in fact, starts first in this canonic imitation. Let's hear just the piece up to that point. That's the right hand putting forth the ideas that the left hand will soon pick up on. In your left speaker, here comes the left hand. utterance of the chorale melody in the right hand in your right speaker. The left hand in canon in your left speaker. is the first phrase. I'm going to stop it. I'll just show you how things are fitting together here. I'm going to play just the cannons with the bass now. well play the canons with the two obligato voices without the bass now so the two imitative canonic voices the two obligato voices first phrase. Let's bring back in the bass. And now we're off. Here is our second portion, we could say. The singer is now breathing. This is during the comma in the phrase of the chorale. And because the right hand started first in imitation, what do you think Bach's going to do next? That's the 
left hand starting the canonic imitation in your left speaker and here answers the right in the right speaker. Second phrase. Leader and follower swap again. The right hand leads now from the right speaker. Left hand answering. Now pay attention to the bass here. Stop it there after that phrase. Yeah, see, this phrase seemed to me to be a bit different. It was more complicated, of course, due to the chromaticism, that squeezing in between the voices. And then, of course, when I said pay attention to the bass, the bass is no longer going... He starts... And that's the only time in the piece that the bass will have activity other than those eighth notes. Boom, 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 boom. And then, of course, you have to ask yourself, Why? Why did Bach do that? How does a musical mind like Bach make this sort of decision where he says, well, you know, the bass is becoming a little too stagnant. I'm going to spice it up. I'm going to inject some interesting rhythmic nuance into it. Why and how does Bach make that decision? Is it random? Well, this is, of course, where the great Albert Schweitzer sort of blew everyone's collective Bach mind in the early 20th century when he started looking at the Bach compositions through the perspective of text. And he found that Bach only makes decisions in these chorale settings, in this liturgical music. He only makes these decisions based on the text. And what's happening in the text there? The text is something like, he calls us to be brothers or... Uh, calling us to be brothers, something like that, Brudesein. And of course, what is this fraternal call for Bach? Well, this is the pedal, who until this point has done nothing other than, you know, sit and just sort of watch watch this imitation from the sidelines. Now he says, okay, let's let's be brothers. Okay, so let's listen to this again and watch this marvelous text painting come to life. section of the piece and what will happen, what will change here. Left hand first. Imitated in the right. Okay, what happened there? Well, so far, every canonic imitation has been separated by two bars. One bar, two bars, imitation. 
But here, in the midst of the golden section, he says, let's squeeze that imitation, let's make it closer together. And this is the only time in the piece where the point of imitation, where the space between the voices is reduced to one bar, it's squeezed. You might be incredulous and say, well, does the melody only work at one bar? No, in fact, you can imitate this particular phrase at two bars. Here it is, one bar, two bars. Very simple, but Bach, he sees that. He says, no, we're in the golden section of the piece. We're gonna, we're gonna change something about it. Let's listen to it. And the squeeze, one bar. BWV 682. So I think we've had here a pretty brief but somewhat in-depth conversation about what a chorale is, how Bach works with these chorale melodies, and obviously we're going to see this as we delve deeper into his vocal works and his organ works. Before I play a recording of someone playing this on an acoustic organ, few announcements. I'm starting a Substack, which I guess is going to be the platform on which I release these podcasts. I don't think you will have to change anything about the way you listen to these episodes, but should you wish to follow me more in depth, that is going to be the place to be. And actually there I'm going to publish some writings, some scholarly or quasi-scholarly writings about music, and maybe should it entertain you some writings about other things in my life. Uh, But it will be there that I think you can 
add yourself to the mailing list and hopefully this will be the hub for all things WTF Bach and I believe it's just simply wtfbach.substack.com and then the second thing is I played in Erfurt, Germany recently and two listeners from the podcast actually showed up it was very cool to see some of you there it makes this very worthwhile to know that you know you're actually listening and you're not a number on a computer but you're a person so thank you for coming and supporting me and one of these listeners actually makes Spotify playlists of all of the cantata cycles. So I'm going to put the links to those playlists in the description. That's very cool. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for sharing with me. And now here is a recording of BWV 682 as played by Kay Johansson on the organ. So thanks for listening.
know about this everybody podcast. needs to know about this podcast if you, if care, you about care about Bach, Bach you'll, you'll share, share this podcast with your friends, friends and, and, and your enemies and your friends you can become a patron of WTF Bach by donating on PayPal, Cash App, or Venmo. You can find all relevant links in the episode description. Those donate. Write us. Write us. Engage with us. Write us. Bach at WTFBach.com. Once again, that's Bach at WTFBach.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.